Um, today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, sound of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Uh, well, welcome to Exilic. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to especially welcome you to our church if you're new to our city or maybe you're doing a summer internship in the city. Maybe you've just relocated here from uh, another city because of work. Uh, regardless of where you're coming from, we want to welcome you to our church today. Um, when I was in seminary many moons ago, uh, I took a class called Pentateuch. And uh, Pentateuch are, is the first five books uh, in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but even though the class was called Pentateuch, we never left the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, we never left the first 12 chapters of Genesis for an entire semester. And the reason for that is because Genesis has so much great content, uh, especially in the beginning of the book. And similarly, for the past seven weeks, uh, we've been on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we'll be taking a look at Genesis 3 one more time today. Uh, but just to give you a roadmap for the rest of 2023, uh, after today, uh, we'll take a break from Genesis, and then we'll have uh, our staff and a variety of different speakers come and talk about different topics for the summer. And then in September, we'll pick back up on Genesis, and that will take us all the way to Christmas. And I don't know where we'll get to, but I'm hoping that we can at least get like a third of the way done uh, with Genesis. Okay, so that gives you a roadmap for what uh, this year holds. But today, we're going to be taking a look at arguably one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and that is Genesis chapter 3. And the way that I want to introduce Genesis chapter 3 to you is by talking about my favorite Disney story, Beauty and the Beast. And if you've never seen Beauty and the Beast before, it opens up on a very dark and rainy night where a handsome prince is throwing a ball in his castle 
or the rich and the famous and the social elite and intelligentsia of his time. And everyone is having a great time when all of a sudden he hears a knock on the door. The prince opens the door and behind the door in the rain is an old poor woman seeking shelter from the rain. So she comes in and she asks if she can stay there until the rain stops. But the handsome prince says no, because she's not one of his kind of people. And so he kicks her out. But before he kicks her out, she unveils her cloak and reveals her true identity as a witch. And because of the handsome prince's sin or unkindness, she casts a spell on him. And he is not transformed, but he becomes malformed into a hideous beast. And in fact, everyone invited to the ball are now transformed into candlesticks and teapots and clocks. And everyone doesn't become transformed, but becomes malformed. Now, you know how the rest of the story goes, right? Uh, whenever there's a spell, there's a spell that is broken by true love. And someone falls in love with this hideous beast uh, before the last petal of the rose falls. And because of that, the beast is now transformed, not just back to his old identity, but he's almost like this born-again person. He's a new person than what he was before. And all the household objects, too, are transformed, like, like they're born again into these new people than they were before. And one of the things that's very interesting about the story of Beauty and the Beast and almost every Disney story and almost stories as a whole is that there almost always is some kind of spell, uh, whether it's Snow White or Sleeping Beauty with Aurora or the Princess and the Frog with Tiana or even Neo and the Red Pill and the Blue Pill and the, you know, the whole Matrix thing. But there's always some kind of spell, but that spell is always broken by true love almost every single time. And the reason why I mention this is why, why do we why do we love stories like that? Why do we resonate with stories like that? Why do we even long for stories like that? And I think a part of it is because not only do we want them to be true, but there's a part of us that might even think that it points to some kind of true love that can break a spell, uh, that can break or reverse a curse that takes place. And the reason why I mention that is is it possible then if these stories that we long for point to the fact that our own material world is far more magical than we think? It's far more supernatural than we think. It's far more uh, wonderful and covered with pixie dust than we think. But at the same time, is it possible that not only is our world as magical uh, as we think, but it's also simultaneously filled with as many curses, darkness, uh, spells than we think as well. If you look at Ephesians 6, this is what Paul writes. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All right, so now you might be here today and you're like, hey, I thought this was like the thinking church, right? Like inspiring thinkers to believe, inspiring believers to think, and you're talking about like Harry Potter, wizardry, spells, and curses. Like, is that what you're really talking about right now in 2023? Yes, I am. That is exactly what I am talking about right now. In fact, what is a spell? A spell is when you are influenced by another person. A spell is when your mind is controlled by another person. A spell is when your mind is almost manipulated by another person. And this is why I think that uh, the apologist Gavin Ortland is right when he said that doing apologetics in our modern world today is not about winning arguments so much as it is breaking a spell. Okay, let me elaborate on what I mean by that. If you take a look at verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just stop right there for a moment. I've never seen this before, and much like you, I've probably read this verse a gajillion times. But one of the things that's very interesting about the word serpent uh, is that the Hebrew word for serpent is nakash. But nakash actually has a double meaning. Do you know what nakash also means? It not only means serpent, but nakash also means sorcery. Isn't that interesting? And much like a sorcerer, this crafty, cunning, sly serpent casts a spell on Adam and Eve. And the way that he casts a spell on Adam and Eve is not with a wand, but with the third meaning of nakash, which also happens to mean to whisper or to hiss. And so you can imagine the serpent being totally aware that God is walking in the garden, comes up to Eve, and he hisses, or he whispers into her ear, did God really say you can't bite of this fruit or eat of any tree in the garden? And you can almost hear him whispering. And what is he doing there? He is trying to influence the way that she thinks. He's trying to control the way that she, she thinks. He's trying to manipulate or, or, or shape the way that she thinks. And you know what? If he did that to Adam and Eve, he also can do that to you and to me as well. In 2 Corinthians 11, this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And he says this, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning or spell or craftiness, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here Paul is saying uh, that what the serpent did in the garden can not only happen to them, but it can also happen to us as well. Now, what does this look like? 
It could simply look like this. You're going through a hard time. Satan slithers up to you, and he whispers in your ear, why is all this crap happening in your life? Like, if God is good, why is all this crap happening in your life, in your family's life? He's not good. Or it could be, well, if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he change things in your life? Like, why, why is stuff still going the way that it is if he's all-powerful? Why doesn't he intervene and do something about it? He's not all-powerful. Or it could be something like the church. The church is not a safe space. It's like spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse. No institution is to be trusted, especially the church. It is not a safe space. You should not go there. Or it could be him whispering to you, how, how, how could you do what you did last night? Like if people found out about that, they wouldn't think that you're a good Christian anymore, but that you're a hypocrite. So maybe you should stop identifying yourself as a child of God and just live the way that you want to live. Or it could be that addiction. See, it helps. All you need are more frequent and intense doses of it. And that'll help numb the way that you feel. More than God, like he's not doing anything. But the addiction, it can actually work. You just need more of it and more intensity of it. And every day he slithers right up to us and he whispers these things into our ear. And before you know it, instead of being transformed into the image of Jesus more and more, without even realizing it, there is a spell that is cast on us, and we become malformed into the image of a beast. But you know what? The serpent, he not only makes us question the goodness of God, but his other strategy is to make us question the values of God as well. So let me, let me flesh out what this could potentially look like, okay? If you've been at our church for a little bit, you might be familiar with the name Joseph Nye. Joseph Nye was a political scientist at Harvard many years ago, and in the late 80s, Joseph Nye was the first one to coin the popular phrase, phrases, hard power and soft power. Hard power is when you're trying to influence, manipulate, almost cast a spell on people through militaristic ways, right? So think 1984, something Orwellian, missiles, guns, tanks, North Korea, Russia, China, that's hard power. You're trying to control people through militaristic ways. Soft power, on the other hand, is not with guns and nukes and stuff like that, but it's, it's more controlling people with thoughts and ideas. Okay. Now, you might think that soft power is weaker than hard power, but soft power is actually far more powerful than hard power because hard power, you know, missiles can't just go everywhere, and it takes time, right? But soft power can go all over the world in seconds, right? It can go places where tanks cannot go. And so in many ways, soft power is far more powerful than hard power, okay? But soft power can also be used for good. So I'll give you a few, few examples of this. One of the fascinating things over the past 10 years has been the exporting of Korean culture around our world. Uh, do you know what the largest army in the world is today? Yes, you do. It is not North Korea. It is BTS. And this army will die for what they believe in. 
right? This army is passionate. It is white, black, brown, Asian. It is all over the world, okay? Everyone, uh, you know, everyone loves their music. But it's not only just, you know, K-pop, but it's K-dramas. It's kimchi sold in Costco. It's seaweed sold in Trader Joe's. Um, Pastor Gene has been on Pat Lead the past month because he had his fourth. And he's like bored out of his mind. And so he's been texting me every day saying, bro, when is Singles Inferno season three coming back on? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't watch that stuff. But it's interesting how we've seen sort of this exporting of Korean dating culture and humor and fashion and food uh, spanning our entire globe. What is that but a form of soft power? So soft power can be used for good, but it can also be very dangerous as well. So in Australia, they actually have laws requiring Australian networks to have a minimum amount of Australian content. Now, that might sound funny to you, right? Why does Australia need a minimum amount of Australian content? Like, what are they afraid of? What they're afraid of is the American media. Our world is so American-centric, and Hollywood is so, so powerful. If they don't have laws to protect themselves from us, our news becomes their news. Our business swallows up their business. Our justice issues now become their justice issues, even though they have their own justice issues, right? And so soft power then can also be used to harm other people. And so what we're seeing today in the past is Britain would colonize different nations through hard power. But what we're seeing today is not hard power colonizing people so much as soft power and information colonization that is taking place, particularly with Western secular colonization taking place. We talk about things like white supremacy, but there's also Western supremacy as well that is happening all over the world. Now, back to Genesis 3. Here is a snake. I don't know if you've ever seen those like nature channels when snakes fight against like crocodiles and elephants and stuff like that. What is a snake's greatest weapon? Venom. Hard power. And yet here is a snake that doesn't use its venom or hard power, but this crafty snake uses soft power. And he plants this idea into Adam and Eve's head to control their minds, to manipulate their minds by simply saying, did God really say? And just like that, they're enslaved by him. And some of the ways that the serpent uh, does this throughout scripture is even with Jesus himself. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, does Satan bring a legion of demons with him to go at Jesus and his legion of angels? No, that's hard power. What does he do? He uses soft power again. He plants an idea into Jesus's head and he says, if you do this, I will give you that. And so he's trying to, again, cast a spell on Jesus as well through soft power. Now, if this is what the serpent does, right? And if you've read Sun Tzu's Art of War, what's one of the most important things in war? Know thy enemy. What is one thing that we can learn about the serpent here? If he uses soft power against Adam and Eve, against Jesus, what makes us think that he won't do that to us as well? 
And it could be by simply questioning the goodness of God, but it could also be questioning the values of God as well. And typically what that could look like are a bunch of things. Uh, if you've been at our church for a little bit, um, I've put this list out before. Um, there are 13 secular whispers or hisses or spells that he whispers to us on a daily basis. And so it could be things like questioning the value of God by simply saying, be true to yourself. Not true to Christ or the fact that you're a child of God, but be true to yourself. Follow your heart, which is the theme of every Disney movie. Despite the fact that the prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all else, you can't trust your heart. It's too dark. Number three, you be you. And of course, how can I be me if I don't know who I am? Number four, uh, I create my own meaning, not God. Number five, I can do anything I want as long as I don't hurt others. So this is relativism with one absolute truth. Number six, they're in a better place despite the fact that our secular worldview doesn't believe in anything transcendent, still leaks out of us. Number seven, love is love. Number eight, you are what you feel. Number nine, look inside instead of looking outside up to God. Number 10, I'm a good person. Very Rousseauian, right? I'm not Hitler, didn't do anything crazy. Therefore, because I'm not Hitler, I'm a good person. Uh, number 11, the goal of life is happiness or the American dream. Number 12, if you don't agree with me, you hate me and are my enemy when God says to love our enemies. And last but not least, the prophetess, Elsa. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And this is the definition of freedom today. And as you take a look at this list, this is the secular air that we breathe every day. This is the secular ocean that we're swimming in every single day. And it shapes us and influences us and controls us far more than we think. And the transporters and mediums of these messages might not be a serpent, but they are other things like the podcasts that we listen to, the music we listen to, the shows that we watch, the advertisements that we experience. It could be a parade. It could be a flag. It could be our company's core beliefs. These are our, our peers, our coworkers. These are all the mediums where Satan comes and whispers to us, these are the things you should value. Not valuing the things of God himself. And when that happens, this slow inoculation, as it were, slowly begins to fog our eyes and it impairs our vision. And we can't see things anymore clearly the way that we ought to. And this is what happens to Eve in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I was with a, a pastor friend of mine named John in the Upper West Side, and he pointed this out, which I'd never seen before. But he said, what's really interesting is that in Genesis 1 and 2, seven times it says that God saw. 
So God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that seven times. And here what the author is doing is juxtaposing what God saw in Genesis 1 and 2 with what Eve saw. And what God saw what was good and Eve saw what was good are two entirely different things. And this is what I'm talking about, the foggy eyes. What God saw was good was actually good, but what Eve saw was good was actually not good for her. She couldn't see, though. She had impaired vision. And you know what? It's not only her, but it's people throughout Scripture. Lot saw the wrong city. Samson saw lust. Joseph's brothers only saw jealousy. Jonah only could see the wickedness in the city, not the potential of the city. Peter only saw a political messiah. The Pharisees only saw legalism and tradition. The Israelites as a whole, having eyes, could not see. Having ears, could not hear. But it's not only people throughout Scripture that have foggy eyes and impaired vision. It's you and me, too. The more the spell is cast upon us, the more foggier our vision becomes, and we just can't see what is really, really good. Even the bad things we think are good for us when they're really not. Can I share an example of this? So one of the things I really, really love about our church are the amount of people that are on some kind of spiritual journey, particularly those of you who are checking out Christianity and God. I love that about our church. And over the years, I've had so many conversations with people inside of our church and, you know, throughout our city as a whole that are skeptics and seekers that are really trying to figure out what life is about. And on more than one occasion, um, sometimes during our conversations, I'll, I'll ask this question. Let's just for a moment put Jesus aside, okay? And let's just put all the political baggage of, of religion aside for a moment. Okay, so Jesus aside, politics aside. If I were to offer you atonement and forgiveness for all of your sins, the big ones, medium ones, small size ones, the time you lost your cool with your parents, the time you gossiped about your coworker, that lustful look, the time you lost patience with your kids, like the time you fudged numbers that one time, you could have all your sins forgiven from the time you were born to the time you die. All of it wiped clean. And after you die, eternal life with a new body in a better earth forever so that you don't cease to lose consciousness, but you can continue for forever and ever. Would you want it? You know what's so surprising and a little bit puzzling is how many times I've, I've shared this with people and how many times people have said to me, no, I don't want that. You, you don't want forgiveness of all your sins and eternal, like you wouldn't, like politics aside, like you wouldn't want that. And on more than one occasion, people have said, no, I, I don't want that. And I think a part of the reason why sometimes people say, I don't want that is because they've experienced so much trauma in their life. They've experienced so much hurt, they can't even imagine what the good life could really look like. It's too good to be true. 
there's got to be some kind of catch. And the thing is, there is no catch. Like, no two-year mission trips like Mormons. You don't have to change your diet, stop eating pork and bacon and shellfish or beef. You don't have to pray towards Mecca five times a day. You don't have to do all this stuff. Like, nothing. All you have to do is believe. That's it. It's still like, I don't, I don't want it. And so I think a part of it is like the trauma that people have experienced. But I think the other reason why people don't want this is because the only thing I can think of is that there must be some kind of powerful dark spell over that person. The eyes are so foggy at this point. Even comprehending, imagining something like that, they can't see how good that is. But you know what? I've also seen many people that were like that too, but the spell is broken where their eyes are opened in a good way, the fogginess is lifted, and all of a sudden they can see so crystal clearly. And you know how that spell is broken? Same way every Disney spell is broken. It's always with true love. Not from a handsome prince, not from a dashing princess, but true love horizontally, fall from God's people for sure, Adam was not a good, not a good friend, not a good, not a good husband to Eve. He should have turned down the voice of the serpent and turned up and amplified God's voice in her life. And Eve was not a good wife or a good friend to Adam. She should have turned down the volume of the serpent's voice and amplified the voice of God in his life. But they did not. And as a result of that, malformed. But when you experience true love, where God's people are turning down the dials of the serpent's whispers that we experience every single day and they amplify the voice of God, your life can be transformed and different and it can break the spell in your life. But not only when we experience true love relationally, which is so important, especially in an age of loneliness, but also when we experience love from God vertically as well. So if you look with me at... Um, If you look at with me, with me at verse 7 to 10, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. You know, one of the reasons why um, Beauty and the Beast is my favorite Disney story is because of Belle. I think she is the best character in all of Disney. And when she finds out that her father is missing and imprisoned in the, in the Beast's dark castle, she goes looking for him. And what we see in this passage is God is now looking for Adam and Eve. They're not looking for him. They're actually hiding from him. God is the seeker. They're the hiders. But true love, it's the nature of true love to go and pursue uh, others, right? And that is what we see God doing here. This is why John Calvin actually referred to God as the hound of heaven who pursues after us relentlessly. 
And it's very possible that you're here right now at Exilic. Maybe it's your first Sunday or second or third, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know anyone here. I don't think I even believe in God. But I have no idea why I'm here. And could it be possible that maybe, maybe God is the one that is actually looking for you and has brought you here because he's pursuing you and he's asking, where are you? But the other reason why I love Belle so much is not only because she pursues her missing father, but when she does find him at the beast castle imprisoned, she offers the beast a proposal and she says to him, if you free my father, I will take his place. I will be in prison so he could be set free. And whenever I watch it with my girls, I always have to ask them, would you do that for daddy? <laughs> and the oldest, my faithful oldest of that fellow, so it's like, of course, daddy, I would die for you. I'll be in prison for you. And then I look at the youngest and I say, Hayden, would you do that for me? And, and you know what she says? But daddy, what about me? <laughs> What's going to happen to me? <laughs> and she'll start crying. I'm like, okay, 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 fine, 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 fine. But what we see happening in scripture is that he not only pursues us, but he takes our place. Uh, the punishment for our sins, for the consequences that we deserve. You know, it's interesting um, that that phrase, cool of the day, uh, isn't, that, isn't that such an interesting description that is given of the Garden of Eden? I don't think that when Moses wrote this, he was just giving us a Weather Channel update on what the Eden, Garden of Eden looked like. You know what I think he was doing? That word, that phrase, cool of the day, is the Hebrew word ruach, which can also be translated wind or cool of the day or spirit. And I think what is taking place here is that Moses is not just giving us a weather update of the Garden of Eden, but what's happening here is that the Spirit of God is about to bring judgment on Adam and Eve for the wrong choices they made. But instead of that judgment, which is why they're hiding, but instead of that judgment falling on them, he trades places with us for all the wrong choices we make every day. And he takes our place. In Galatians 3, it says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And what happens on the cross is that Jesus takes our curse so that the spell on us would be broken. And once that spell is broken, we not only become, we, not, we do not become malformed, but we become transformed to the people of God we are supposed to be, okay? Now, practically, how can we break that spell every day? Let me just close with Homer's Odyssey for a moment. In Homer's Odyssey, uh, after a 10-year Trojan War, Homer is on a journey back home. The problem is it's, it's a very long voyage. And on his journey back home to see his wife, Penelope, there are these sirens. And these sirens are like human-like creatures. And the siren song is so beautiful and so seductive that whenever sailors hear the siren song, they can't help 
but veer the ship towards the sirens. The problem is, by the time their eyes are not foggy anymore, they're crashing into rocks. And so what happens is that as they follow the siren song, their lives are destroyed. And if we can click on the next image, when you leave this room, there will be siren songs, they will be, there will be whispers, there will be hisses that are everywhere in our city, everywhere on our phones, feeding you different sirens and voices. And it is precisely during those moments we have to practice lowering the dial, lowering the, the volume on these voices and the whispers that we hear. And we have to learn to amplify the voice of God in our life so that our lives do not disrupt, but we are transformed more and more into the image of beast, uh, image of him. And so when that happens, what does that look like? It could be coming to the prayer brunch yesterday. It could be joining a CG. It could be coming, coming out to church on Sundays. It could be the picnic, hopefully, if the rain holds up. But surrounding ourselves with God's people and his word in our life as our true north so that we are not malformed, but transformed into the image of our Savior more and more. Let's pray together. Father, our minds and our thoughts are so wild. Uh, they run all over the place, Partic particularly when there are thought bubbles and voices um, that are constantly um, invading our minds. And so it is my prayer, Father, that you would help us to learn how to turn down the dial on the wrong whispers and hisses, uh, and we would learn to amplify your voice. Help us to experience true love from one another, but most of all, help us to experience that true love that you have for us. Uh, and to remind ourselves every day of that so that the spell is broken day after day after day. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to transition to a time of offering. And we like to 